no i mean architecture is political we gotta we gotta add that stuff indeed we're tearing down communities to build multifamily, and you have to understand we are creating displacement you're displacing black and brown folks and they don't come back half of this podcast would be dedicated to the history of tyler house my journey and my discoveries and hey i'm gonna solve this housing problem hey guys what's up my name is melissa daniels this is the architecturalist political podcast where black and brown folks talk about architecture i hope you enjoyed this podcast and be part of my storytelling well the last installment of intersections Corey henry presented and after his presentation i asked him the same question i asked maple wilson how is your mental health? I know that the space that he works in, not all the time, he's he's very diverse in his portfolio, but in spaces where he works with a site that has experienced Black trauma due to systematic oppression. I know that researching that space and hearing the stories and it could take a toll on you just like i mentioned in my intro in maple wilson episode i know how that is or i can only imagine how that is he asked his students to celebrate the accomplishments of a site in spite of its the system of oppression and i appreciate that because you don't see much black joy in things you more see monuments and so forth and it's so important Nowadays, especially to see those things, understand the history and the trauma that happened in the space and how we could utilize that space, how we can transform the energy, the, the energy in that space into something that's celebrated. Recognize what happened in the past. Let's not repeat it again and celebrate it positively in the future. I'm taking a class, Afrofuturism, and it's a four-week course, once a week. So there's four sessions. And this last session, I got emotional. I was triggered, and I was not expecting it. She went kind of dark on the first session. She talked about the apocalypse and dystopia, and I'm like, wait, what's going on here? I didn't sign up for this. But I saw the correlation of dystopia versus utopia. And I didn't think about it and how it's a form of escape. And so she started off with like the future. Like, what do you see the future as? And she used a lot of shows to illustrate that. Star Trek, for example. And then she highlights the black characters that may be in some of these shows. So Lieutenant Aurora, I think that's her name, the, the black woman who, who played the communications officer. She was a pioneer during that time the star trek during that era the og star trek of that era was pioneered for a whole bunch of reasons they showed diversity they showed all this stuff that they showed it could have been like the first time many people many black and brown folks are part of the future in space fast forward to now when i interviewed hazel edwards a couple of episodes back she mentioned her class that she's co-teaching that some of the students are working off planet Here's a clip from that episode. We have a NASA grant. So Howard Architecture is a part of a seven institution team funded by NASA to develop a, a space habitat. Mm. Or just a space habitat. Wow. We just started year four of that grant. 
It's just amazing to see how far we've come from, you know, having Lieutenant Aurora representing all Black women to seeing students at Howard think about, I don't know, I'm assuming it's Mars and planetary exploration or something. I haven't seen the syllabus, so. But going back to the class, the Afrofuturism class, I got emotional. The teacher showed a clip of Lovecraft Country, and it's an HBO show that happened a couple of years ago. And in that clip, it takes place in, I don't know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, and it follows this Black woman. And she, long story short, she escapes reality, and she's able to hop in different possibilities, right? And one of these possibilities is she's an astronaut and she's in space. And the visuals on that show, this is it's beautiful because it tells the story like all she is is she's collecting specimens. It's her and her husband. She's wearing this fly like Star Trek ass 1960s <laughs> outfit, and I got emotional because the idea of us being a part of just being equal and just being included and not have all this other trauma that is constantly happening to us. And then I thought about myself and I thought about how only now I'm able to open up my mind and to, to, to begin to truly design. And I did not know I had all these barriers to deal with. And I am in awe of like people like Corey who's able to articulate these things to search for projects so that people like me can visualize what a space can be despite of trauma and to release that trauma out, free up my mind and just be able to truly be creative. Not to say, because sometimes trauma and sometimes the struggle creates other things, that, that someone who has never struggled before isn't capable of creating, but it's not a prize, right? It's not like, hey, look at my trauma and look what I create. No, you you don't seek that. You do that out of necessity. And in this civilization, we are smart enough to not truly like be of necessity if we really wanted to. And that's a whole other different conversation. But so that is just an example of some of the things that we talked about. And we talked about some of his work that, that he's doing in OKC. We got we got a shout out to Vanessa Morrison for that. One thing too is I think Corey was shocked that that is not an interview format. And I don't do like Q&A interviews. I mean, I have questions, of course, obviously, but it's a getting to know each other and me appreciating, me fanning over someone's work, basically, and me just, you know, how did you do it? Like, how did you do this and that or whatever? So I hope you enjoy it. He's been a pleasure to talk to and a great ending for Intersections. I want to thank the National Building Museum for giving me this opportunity to talk to these amazing people, to have, you know, these conversations. And thank you to Jacqueline Sawyer, especially for giving me this opportunity to be a part of something that's just phenomenal. I, I look forward to any other features, whether I'm a part of it or not, of Intersections and partnering with the National Building Museum. It's been great. And again, thank you for being a part of it. And I hope you guys enjoyed this last interview. So here you go. Corey, what's up? How are you? I'm good. You're on the west side. 
this time LA, around. LA traveling quite a bit, but LA is the base. So this is part of intersections that happened six, seven months ago. So I just want the audience to know that. And so I'm still going to add it in the section of where intersections is. You're doing other things in your life from January or the summer, geez, December mm-hmm. till now. What's been going on with, are you still dealing with students? What was going on right now? Yes, let me see. So since then, I would say from some of the projects that, that was presented, uh, like the Freedom Center project, that's moving forward. So we're looking forward to possible opening in July, at least um, a walkthrough event with Clara Loopers. I know we're jumping a little bit into it, but for that project, it was not only that building, but it was the outlook of a civil rights center being built. And the architect of record for our projects for that Freedom Center project in Oklahoma, we both were asked to be part of the design. I was asked to lead the design. They were asked to be architect of record on the civil rights centers. So we were planning on doing a civil rights center in Oklahoma City. Uh, just a block down from that side. Uh, I'm still involved with students. I I still teach at at the GSD at Harvard. We have a group of students right now who are doing an exhibit on Black home. So they're looking at Black home in in Africa and trying to take down that myth that all of Africa is poor and people and it's an uncivilized society by this examination of the Black home, um, obviously this entire continent. So that's a, a bit of a challenge, but they're doing a really good job of that. So that's going to be an exhibit that's going up. So that's right now my current engagement with students. I go back to the GSD and I teach uh, this fall. So one thing that I want to home in on in this conversation, at least, is the fact that when you teach and the projects that you produce embodies politicalness. The architecture is perfect for the title of this podcast. Architecture is political. And you explore real tangible topics that are affecting the Black and Brown community. There were two projects that you focused on at Intersections, which was one was rural Mississippi, and it's entitled The Paradox of Hunger. And the other one is what you mentioned, the Freedom Center at uh, Oklahoma City. I want to talk about the GSD one. This project happened last year. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I just want to, you know, just familiarize the audience with this particular project that you have the students do. Yeah. So when I teach at her GSD, I teach what's called Option Studio. So I have the, let's say, autonomy to choose exactly what we look at. And whatever we look at is usually tangentially related to something that we're doing in my studio, in my atelier. And in this case, we have associations with folks in Mississippi who do a wide range of work. One is looking at food insecurity in Mississippi current day. So we have a real life, real project in practice along those lines. But what I wanted to do was have students look at food insecurity in a way, because one thing is if you, every time I start a studio, I always ask, why did you get involved in architecture? And 99, it's not 100% of the students say, I want to make real change. I want to affect real change through the medium of design, which can be an ivory tower ideology, right? Where you're just saying, okay, I think I could solve it all. It could also be BS. It could be, okay, or it could be, this is what we really want to look at and really want to try to do. And if that's the case, there's questions that you have to do. One, you have to understand the political system behind it, all the mechanisms behind why these inequalities happen. The other thing, too, is you're going to challenge the agency of architecture. I don't believe that you should, just because you go to architecture school that you should leave and be an architect. 
It depends on exactly, again, what you want to do because architecture's agency and effect and change is, is limited, actually, depending on what it is. And then and we also try to focus on real design, space, aesthetic, all of those things that really encompasses just the experience of being within a, a project. But the first thing is to look at the political side. So we looked at food insecurity in rural Mississippi. And the reason being is Mississippi has the most arable land in the country, yet it's consistently the most food insecure. It, I think it's either first or second in terms of farmland usage per acreage in the, uh, in the state. So all of this, so you, you automatically say, why is this state that has all this arable land, all of this agriculture, the most food insecure? And there's a political system behind that. So the first thing, and that's thinking the first half of the semester, it was just understanding these things. So speaking to people who are involved in Mississippi in a deep way, know what Noel did love. I am part of the Mississippi uh, food systems. We also spoke with people from the Choctaw tribe and how they are dealing with food insecurity and how their autonomy actually helped them out during COVID when a lot of people were suffering, why they, just because they owned their land, how they were able to feed their people with fresh produce. We spoke to folks from the World, Life, uh, World Wildlife Fund. So we, it was this wide range and students constantly came back and was trying to figure out how do we answer this through architecture? How do we address this through architecture? So the second half of that studio then was to give the students a site to work on and then look at, again, food, everything that they learn on food insecurity. So we were at a school in just outside of Jackson, Mississippi, and it was, it's a historically black school. And it was started by the, the son of a former slave. There were two things that were really important to the poor, not just the black poor, but even the white poor, was one, learning to read, and two, food sovereignty. So it was a school that started with agriculture. So that's what we, so that was our site. So there was a lot for students to take in and learn, but they produced some really good work in the end. The first half of the studio, were there any charrettes that was happening during that time? Little projects here and there so that the students could wrap their head around all this information. The Bombardi was actually <laughs> a really, a really, I would say, I would say Bombardi, I would say it was almost like a, a data dump on what food insecurity actually is. It's not just, it doesn't just mean that your stomach is full because you could be food insecure, but you eat McDonald's all day. It's to make sure that you're actually being nourished. We had charrettes in terms of the information that you're looking at, looking at purchase and projects that aligns with their particular interests in addressing this topic. Again, we looked at, we went to Mississippi. We went to, we spoke to farmers there. We went to Jackson State. We went to Tougaloo. So we went to different campuses to see how they how food insecurity is being addressed even on campus. So there wasn't really, and honestly, it seems 12 weeks or I believe, I'm sorry, maybe even 18 weeks is a lot of time to do a project of this depth, but it really isn't when you're giving so much information. So I had them focus on their site and the school is the Piney Wood School. So we had to focus on that. Now you have this cultural context of this historic black boarding school that's history is based in agriculture. So now you can listening to their issues and what they're dealing with as an institution and then how they need to solve food insecurity even on campus. And then again, uh, propose a program for it. Going to the second half of the studio, even though going back to the first, just in general, what type of biases did the students have, or even you, that they came in with and came out? I didn't even know I had this or change perspective or even feedback. 
I think a bias that always comes in is what we mentioned earlier is that architecture, it could easily jump in and solve these issues. Right. And then if, so the first thing I would say is, look, most of the time when the architect is brought in, the program, the financial structure, all of those things are already set. And you're asked to come in and do one particular thing, right? either construct it. And if you're a good designer, uh, which there are a few of, but then you're asked to actually make it look good. Right. But that structure is already set. But that structure is what we're trying to interrupt. So we need to have some sort of understanding of that structure. And I think the students very rarely understand the complexity of that structure is they see it as a linear thing. And I remember somebody telling me this is that oftentimes people see it as a linear, as a line, and it's not. It's this complex web that you're really trying to understand as much of the threads of that web as possible. So that's what's always breaking down that. And I mentioned students always say sometimes they'll see a dollar general. And they'll say, there's a lot of dollar generals in the area. So there's a lot of these micro markets in the area. So how are they food insecure? So then we had this, and which brought out the whole conversation of why I mentioned McDonald's. Dollar generals are similar to McDonald's. It's just flooding the area with food that doesn't actually give you nourishment. And it's cheap for them to do. So it's actually, it's a worst case is to have a lot of dollar generals and McDonald's and fast food in in your community. So uh, that was, I think that was one of the biases that was taken down. How'd you select this site? I avoided the South completely uh, because of the history. Sir. <laughs> where, where are you from? Where are you from originally? D.C. My folks are Trinidadian. Yeah, so I'm Jamaican and New York, right? Yeah. If you ever told me I would be working in Mississippi, I would have said, you, are, you do not know. I promise you that. I, when I've avoided the South, one of my biggest fears growing up not one of my fears, but I said, I never want to drive to the South. I never wanted to drive. I hated driving from New York to Florida. And I never wanted to drive West, anything West of North Carolina. Right. I was like, I, I just don't want to do it. But when I got to Mississippi and I got to, like, maybe I could get into that a little bit later, but when I got to Mississippi, it was through the practice, through our atelier and to work in this really struggling community in Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is along the Delta. Mississippi is the blackest state. And the history in, in, the, in the Mississippi, I mean, talking about black excellence is incredible. And it was part of it was learning my history that I did not know. Yeah. So that was a fantastic experience. And that's something that I, I want. I, that, that's why I keep going back to with these studios is to bring students back. Because one thing I, I think is as much as Mississippi is struggling, if we use it as the bar to examine a lot of these conditions from name it, dealing with the rural poverty, dealing with urban poverty, dealing with food insecurity, if we find a way to make a significant debt, it's not solving in Mississippi, we could do it anywhere. Mm. But because Mississippi is, is there's a lot of uh, polarization, there's a lot of complexity to it. That's why I, I keep going back to Mississippi. Now, some of my, I think my upcoming studio may not be in Mississippi, then the next year it will be. But yeah, I have, I have a deep love now for Mississippi. You take that wrong turn <laughs> and, and you end up in a sundown town. Yeah. That is a reality for us, especially. It, it is 100% a reality. But you know what? I, this, I was asking, my sister was moving. She moved to Philly when I was in Philly and she moved to this small town in Virginia. And I said, yeah, man, why are you moving to this small rural town in Virginia? Aren't you nervous? And this, that, the third. And I said, you couldn't pick a better place that you feel safer as a black person. And she looked at me and she was dead pants, dead serious saying, where is safe? 
in America. Mm-hmm. Where do you feel that you could, she, you, and we were talking about, and I said this, I said, yo, yeah, you could take a room tournament, you know, anywhere in Mississippi and you end up in a place you don't want to be. She said, that could happen in New York. I recently had this experience where somebody yelled nigga to me right outside my house here in LA, right? I'm in LA. I've been calling, I've been called nigga three times when I was living in New York and Yonkers. So it's, you're not, we live in a And it wasn't a guy. It wasn't like a brother, like, yo, my. What's up, man? Oh, no, this was me standing on the edge of my house, him flying down in the truck, white guy yelling, David, this is Yonkers. It was me at 13 walking down the street with two of my friends, and a guy comes out of a bar yelling, you niggas better keep the noise down. I'm walking out of a bar, mm-hmm. right? So and I say all that to say is my fear of the South is I don't have that anymore. I love Mississippi now. That's a good point, though. That's a good point. Because at the very least, I went to school in Boston, right? Mm-hmm. And people are like, how can you be in Boston? It's so racist and so this and that. And I didn't experience that. But towards the end, when I was leaving, maybe six months, I saw it overtly in a sense that I was denied access to things or I was treated differently. And I didn't notice it until I had a, a white counterpart next to me. And yo, wait, what's going on? In a sense, I feel like the South is more in your face than it is in the North. I think that liberal state Vermont, for example, is 99% white people in Vermont, but it's very liberal. Even where you at, California, that's considered liberal, but you said your experience. I don't know because you expect someone in Jackson to call you nigga or versus you mind your business. The streets of L.A. and someone said that. So so it's like if they don't like you because of your race, they're a little bit more overt with it in the South because they're used to it, they're more comfortable with it. But time has changed since Trump, though. Like you said, I mean, the liberal areas, those, these folks out here, like I said, what just happened the other day, so these folks out here are a little bit, um, they feel empowered now to, uh-huh. to express their racism and xenophobia. They a little bit like you're the clients interacting with Pinewood School. Oh, yeah. How was that? Is it different from anything else? I would say it was a little bit different interacting with the Pinewood School. And the, and the fact that one is the operating boarding school. So that this studio was, had a lot of components to it that we, that I broke down so that students could actually focus on one, looking at food security as a main program, as they develop their projects as a main program. But we do in practice is we look at the context of what we're designing and we look outside the brief to deliver a project beyond what the clients would typically expect. I'm not saying that as some sort of advertising for my atelier. I'm saying that as the approach of that I take, then take it to the studio. So working with a school like the Pinewood School, they had to speak to students at the school and talk about their experience at the school which is a bit different than some of our other projects where we talk to community members, where a community member could be there for their entire life, 20 years, 10 years, but they see themselves in a place. And as you're envisioning that, you're envisioning being in this place long-term, or you're trying to make sure that they're in this place long-term. In this case, when you're talking to students, they're there for one, two, three, four years, that's it. So you're talking to a relatively transient community that's really interested in this space, but they're only thinking about their moments that they're there for that four years. Then you're talking to the administration at the school, who are also looking at the school, who are looking at the school long term. But again, there's that history of the school, start founded by the son of a former slave. Again, it has this history of agriculture, 
of teaching. It has 200 acres, the school had 200 acres of farmland. Under, and I would say a lot, most of it is underutilized. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so there was a lot of different things I was taking in. It was a quite a bit different, again, because of the institution that we're talking to, the history of that place that we're talking to. So that was a little bit different than some of the previous studios that I've taught, which some of those previous studios looked at gentrification, look at re- restoration, and some were just purely, let's say, artistically driven. Moving on to Freedom Center, you want to talk a little bit about the scope? Yeah, so that project is in Oklahoma City, in the historical Black community in Northeast Oklahoma. It was the Freedom Center, a small building, about 1,500 square feet. And it was used by the civil rights activist Clara Looper uh, as her headquarters. She bought it as a gas station in, I believe it was like 98 or 1968. But she bought it as a gas station. And one year later, it was firebombed by the KKK. And so after it was firebombed, she basically created a bunker. Uh, she took out all the windows, but she still held a lot of the activities. And those activities included teaching the community the, the Black history that wasn't being taught in school, uh, teaching them other subject matters that wasn't being taught at the school, at least at the quality, the level of uh, quality of, of education that they weren't getting in school. And so it was a, not only a place of just community engagement, community activism, right? It was a place of learning. It was a place of family. So... We were asked to come in and help with the rest- restoration of the building. It was, and it was basically dilapidated for about 11 years. So they had an architect that was working with them on the project, a uh, local firm. And then he asked me to come in and see if there's opportunity to create a vision for the overall project. Because as I mentioned, the idea was that there's going to be a civil rights center going along with it. So then that's when I, uh, I came in and assisted along with that restoration. And what we decided to do then was have public, create public, usable public spaces around the building itself and see the building as an artifact of this larger cultural corridor with the Civil Rights Center and the Freedom Center bookmarking it, bookending it. I apologize, bookending So I pulled this off of your Instagram and here you talk about, you just briefly described it. And this is a concept? Is that what this is a proposal? Yeah, that was a concept. It's under construction now. Uh, and should be done by the end of the summer. So we're looking at July, again, for the media and some of Clara Looper's former students to come by and, and see the restoration. And that monument that you're looking at now, that was donated by the community, Clara Looper, and on it. So that, ex- that currently exists. It was moved, of, obviously, for the construction of the site. But on it, there are you know, faces of different civil rights le- leaders throughout the country. So you have Malcolm X, I believe Megger Evers is there, uh, Martin Luther King is there, so quite a few civil rights leaders. I remember during the presentation, you showed a map. You showed the, the vision? You know what I'm talking about? I do, I do. So it started off with the, with the aerial map, and I was talking about Northeast Oklahoma City versus Northwest Oklahoma City, and then the municipal building in the center. Is that the one? Yes. Yeah, so that so that came about before we got this Clara Looper project. I was asked to look at 23rd Street in Oklahoma City as a corridor that goes through this, again, this Black community. And think about, actually, the first, the person who brought it to me just wanted a new uh, front for her restaurant. And I said, I don't know if that the best is not within what we do at the practice for what she was looking for exactly. It's just, again, we didn't. It just didn't fit us. 
But she then, but then I asked her, what are her overall concerns? Because she said she wanted to bring in more into, obviously more business to her restaurant. And, but she's extremely well known in, in Oklahoma City. But in, in, in our conversations, she mentioned how poorly, poor the infrastructure is on 23rd Street. We got into deeper conversations and then was asked by a community group to look at the infrastructure on this corridor. And then when I went, I visited Oklahoma City, really noticed how porous it is, the lack of density, all these, again, vacant lands. But then it is a municipal building. And then on the other side of the municipal building is Northwest Oklahoma City. I wouldn't say an affluent white community, but a, a predominantly white community. And all of the things that was not part of the infrastructure of the black community was on the other side, on this, on this building. So I wanted it. So we took an aerial look at it and you could see just in the built environment, the lack of resources that was given to one community and the abundance that was given to another community. Again, a municipal building, a government building sits in between, right? This systemic kind of inequities that, that we're seeing here. And we have it in the conference room hung up, just articulating the, how the built environment had played out in this system of inequity. One of the things that amazed me is how Claire Lupa, she bought a gas station and how these buildings are hand-me-downs or mm-hmm. not aesthetically pleasing. Like it's not thought of, designed of, and even either purposely, I'm going to say purposely, just doing that comparison to what you just mentioned with the state house, the, the, this municipal government building and how it starkly divides the haves and the have nots and how the have nots was purposeful of having not. (laughs) That has hit me. So I went to last week before, it's almost two weeks. It's called the Vernacular Architecture Forum. And I never heard of it. And it was an opportunity for me to go. And it was in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And they do tours for the first two days. And then the last day is papers. They have this thing called Buildings and Landscapes. And it's like a, it's a journal, peer review journal. And the tour I went on was the Cranberry Tour. So I learned about cranberries and the vernacular building that people worked in for that. And at the end of the tour, we also looked at the nail factory and all this stuff. At the end, Massachusetts has a large Cambrian population. And in Plymouth, there's a large Cambrian population. And so it was like a storytelling of their house. And they, they made this map. It was so cute. It was like a handmade map. And it just told you the history of some of the buildings. This is a English basement or this is where it's like little stories and stuff. And but in talking to the residents, they were like, white people didn't even want to come to this neighborhood. And all of a sudden they were like, this, you're just getting pushed out. Gentrification <laughs> is hitting their area because it's a beautiful landscape. It's off the water. They have these stories of how they used to play in the water. And they're like, here's this area for you guys. Make it work. And they made it work. And going back to Claire, Lupa's building and how after the firebomb, like you mentioned, it got reinforced. And all you think about is it's a survival mode, right? I need to continue doing what I'm doing 
in survival mode. So there's no architect to, okay, let's reinforce this, but make it designery. I don't know what word to use, but. No, I know. I, I definitely know what you're saying and agree. You're given scraps and you're expected to make the best. They just give it to you and they walk away. Then when you bring back a gourmet meal, then it's, okay, let's take it away from this now. Oh, that's really good. Wow, let's take it. That's the experience of so many different communities, just not only in Oklahoma City, but all over the U.S. So we've looked at it in practice in Indiana. We have a project in South Atlanta, which uh, in Brownsville, which had to probably know about the Atlanta massacre. So they've dealt with that, where in that case, community, again, was given, was basically left to be in isolation. And because they were left in isolation, it became a thriving community, so much so that the that Clark and Lamb started there, right? They started academic, the higher learning institutions. They started banks. If you look at Black Wall Street and from Tulsa, right? But then as the success of these communities started to happen, then you, then it was either burnt down violently or you experienced what now is probably less physically violent, but I think violent nonetheless, like severe acts of gentrification of being pushed out. Uh, get Inglewood, et cetera. We could go on and on in, in cases in which that happens. But when these spaces are designed by architects who are really considering the needs of the community members or considering what uh, the culture and context, then we do have fantastic looking projects. I have a friend named Jerome Hayford who does products in, in Harlem and his, he doesn't work at the, I don't think he has a, he's built, his products are at a particular scale where they engage the public. And they've been absolutely fantastic projects from, I think his last one, that I'm, the one that's running through my head right now is a, during COVID, he had, what he created were these outside dining areas uh, that was used by all of the community. But the, there's a certain aesthetic to it that you say, oh, I, I, that was done by somebody who really cares about the community. And this is not just some sort of mock-up to just say here, right? Just a covering. You have projects like people because like David Ajay's projects where there's this well-designed Francis Kire, uh, friend Jennifer Newsom who does art projects and work in public spaces. So I think when when we're allowed, when designers are allowed to come into communities and create projects around the cultures and the context, the people, who create some beautiful spaces and places to to be. But that unfortunately, that again is a resource that has not been given to certain communities as much as to others. Where do you pull from? Because there's no precedent for us. I don't want to get into the whole black aesthetic thing, but it was a gas station. That okay. was the precedent. And now you turn that into a monument. How do you, where do you draw stuff from? So the way that I work is I'm not looking, I'm not looking at architects or architecture, if that makes sense. It may sound cliche, but I'm really, truly drawing from the context. And in this case, it was the history of place. So your question automatically makes me think of a moment in the project where we're going, we're in front of, pushing in front of the Historical Preservation Board. And there were people on the board who said it should be restored back to the gas station. Because, so to give a quick history, so the building went through three different eras in his life. It was a gas station when she purchased it. It was this white concrete bunker when for quite some time after she closed up all the windows. So it was just getting flat roofs, white box, CMU box, uh, some stucco over some areas. That's it. And then once Clara Looper and her organization got a little bit of money, they put a gable roof on and they put brick on three sides of the building. 
So those are the three, let's say, lifespans of this project. There were folks in historical preservation who said, this, he needs, it should go back to the gas station. That's when she first bought it. There were people who said it should go back to this white box because that's the longest kind of era of, of the building's life. My argument was that it should go to the brick era. And the reason why I'm making that argument was the, was the community remembering it as a brick building. And it's the one moment of agency that Clara Looper had over the aesthetic of the building, when she wanted to feel more like a home. So it wasn't about what all of the outsiders, people who had nothing to do with Clara Looper, people who may not even have known about Clara Looper. It's not about what they think about what this product should be. It's about what uh, the community remembers it. And again, Clara Looper, who's unfortunately not here to speak for herself, but it was a one moment where she said, where she took this, where she, she had the, the opportunity to have uh, the say in what the aesthetic of this building would be. So that was the restoration there and that. And in terms of the public spaces outside of it, it was the conversations with her former students. And when they spoke about the few times, the moments when they would go outside, what that felt like, when they would be able to go to a park, it'd be in a con kind of this sea of concrete that's around them, but there was a small lawn in the back, how much they enjoyed just sitting on that lawn, having a soft surface to sit on, having fish fries outside. So all of that informed the public spaces that happens outside of the artifact of the building itself. So for us and in all of our projects, we, these are different things that we draw inspiration from, that I'm drawing inspiration from to, to think about how the project performs. And then obviously the aesthetic comes into play. And then we draw on different, different resources, different areas of inspiration. Did a groundbreaking happen already? For clarity, yes. It's yeah, a yes. Okay. Construction, not yet. Okay. Yeah, Civil Rights Center, no, that's, that's still bad. We're going to go start designing in about a couple of weeks. Okay. I um, remember last time we were, we were talking and I was like, how is your mental health and all this? Yeah. Checking in again, sir. How is your mental health and all this? That, that question messed me up for me. <laughs> <laughs> I am serious. I went back. I remember leaving and I got back to the hotel with my mom. <laughs> and I said, I don't even know how to answer that. That's that. And I, I was, it was one of those questions. I'm not going to lie to you. I felt like I should be getting teary-eyed. I was like, man, that was... <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I actually, and I thought about that question two days ago, and it's going to sound bad. My cousin sends me these TikTok videos way too much. I block him half the time because he's, he sends me, constantly sending me TikTok videos. But this TikTok video he sent to me two days ago is a new station reporting on a crime hides in Memphis. And they said, look, we're reporting on this crime. And as we're reporting it, there was a drive-by shooting. So they're showing this clip of the reporter with the mic, obviously, in front of this woman. And, but the woman is a black woman. And this, this drive-by happens. When the drive-by happens, she drops to the floor. She tells the reporter, drop to the floor. And the entire time, you can hear the gunshots in the back. And when you hear the gunshots in the back, she's comforting him. She's saying, hey, don't worry, you're going to get through this. And then she starts praying to Jesus. And then when he gets up, the reporter is flustered and she's not, don't worry, we don't worry, calm down, you're good, you're good. And she's back to a casual self like that. I thought about your question then, because think about how much this person goes through that that didn't phase them. That in that moment of time, she didn't even think about herself. She thought about comforting this other person. There is a shootout happening that they are in fear of their lives from. And her first thought was comforting this person next to her. I think that's why. 
my mental health is fine. My, my emotional state, there's ups and downs when you're dealing in these conditions because you see people who are struggling. But at the same time, maybe I, and then I'm, I'm not saying I'm as brave as this woman, I'm almost desensitized to a lot, to some of these things, because one, some of these, a lot of these conditions I, I'm, I've gone through and go through. And in other cases, it's, I'm not as poor as some of these folks, or I haven't been as poor as some of these folks that I've seen. It's up to me to help them. If they could make, if they could smile, if they could maintain composure, if they could get through their day to day, clearly I can, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm not in that condition. I'm not in that situation. But nonetheless, when you asked that question, man, I was like, feel good to be to act. <laughs> Finally, somebody's <laughs> I will say this though, and I do want to I know I talked about some of my friends and peers and, and honestly who I've met through those COVID years, so it's relatively recently. But through COVID and meeting some folks who are really invested in doing impactful work has also given me a, a group. To, to lean on at times, right? And you, it's also inspiring at the same time. And again, so that has been absolutely amazing. And yeah, there's having the support system helps. That's good. I'm glad because I've talked to a lot of people in that work in these spaces, in my own personal trauma. It's just amazing about the Black resilience. It's unfathomable. Even going back to Claire Lupa, someone bombed it rebuild. Like you just keep going even when down south again, or even the Midwest, when you have these tornadoes or hurricanes or these natural disasters and your home is completely wiped out. Coastal, your home is completely wiped out. You rebuild. It's instead of moving to higher ground, you're going to stay there and you rebuild. I was going back to Katrina and those folks There's a documentary I watched a couple of years ago about these kids who were uplifted from Louisiana, from New Orleans, Ninth Ward, and got plopped in Salt Lake, Utah, or some random place in Texas. Their mental health, right? It's just us continually just, I always go back to survival mode. That woman you mentioned, she was like survival mode. How can I make this? How can I make through this? And then just... I'm no longer in survival mode. And she just went right back. And I always think about design and how that affects us. Because I know with me anyway, I remember in architecture school, I was struggling because I would build these boxes. My imagination was in survival mode. And that goes back to design for us. Either you see it through colonialism with the gable roof, like probably what they were thinking, right? When they were doing the gable roof is that, colonialism says you, to move on up, you need a gable roof. This is what we are trained to see. I admire your work and others who have the ability to imagine differently, to, to have an imagination, because my imagination is off of what they taught me, what they told me my imagination should be. And you guys are working against the grain to like come up with solutions to that is for us, obviously by us. One is most people and not just... Good point, yes. Architects or designers, I'm talking artists, most people is is the metrics of what they're telling you beauty is. However, I would say my case, one, just innately is a bit different. But two is I, when I went to architecture school, I went to a transient school. So I went to Drexel's architecture program and I was a trans. I I lived in Philadelphia, but I didn't have a desk at the school. And so I worked a lot of times from home 
And it's, it's also a very pragmatic school. So you leave knowing how to put a building together. That's without question. Do you learn how to design a building, like design the way that I was interested in design? I, I searched outside of that. So I'd go to Princeton. I'd go to Penn, which was across the street. I, I went to Cooper Union a couple of times. You just go, you see the review, you see the work that's being done. But all this time, too, as I'm looking in these studios, and let's say this Drexel, which is in a minority majority city, I'm sitting back and I'm looking and I'm saying, all right, we're in a minority majority city. There is one black professor here and he's agile. I'm looking around, I'm looking at the studios that were the studios that even when they're operating in black communities, and I'm saying everybody's really producing the same thing and nobody really is talking to the community. There was one time where I, I asked a peer of mine, a student, Hey, man, I'm going to go down to North Philly because we're doing our studio project with North Philly. Hey, I'm going to go down to North Philly and just talk to some folks. And he said, nobody's going to go. I don't want to go down there. And then I realized they were all scared to embrace the community. And these are people who are going to graduate and then go out into the field and then not only be in architecture, work in the architecture firm, but be in the planning department, right, of the city and being all these other spaces where there's a fear of engaging others. So now you have this tunnel vision, you have this fear of engagement, and you have this tunnel vision of what everybody has told you the aesthetic should be, which has been, as you mentioned, this kind of predetermined, colonial, Eurocentric kind of style of design. I think that's changed over, I think it's changing. I think it's changing fast, obviously with our connections to the world in, in general, where, where people are now seeing the amazing work that's coming out of a lot of architects and designers on the continent. I'm talking about Africa. Not only just Francis Carey, you have Tosin, who's in Lagos, who's doing amazing work. She actually just gave a lecture at the GSD. So I think that's, I think that's breaking uh, up a little bit. And I just hope that designers, architects, planners, landscape architects, people uh, from diverse backgrounds have opportunities to operate in all spaces. And that's the other thing, too. I know I'm going over a little bit of a, a run-on, but... It's not only to say have black architects on projects, but have folks from different socioeconomic backgrounds on projects. That's something that I'm constantly fighting for because uh, it's important that we have people who come in with an understanding of what's it like, or even interested in what's it like with people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and how they maneuver space. One thing I do want to mention too, which was shocking to me along those lines, is when I is during COVID. And the George Floyd murder happened. And I remember being on a panel and I discussed Los Angeles transit system. And I said, if you plan to go to do this, do that, these are the different gangs that you're asking people to go through. And this is why it would be troubling for this group to go through, or this would be a condition for this group to go through. And did you know that this certain group can't cross the street here? So if you put a supermarket there, it's really going to be only for this group, or if you put it here in a kind of this neutral area, everybody. And I'm a prominent planner here in Los Angeles said, I did not know about the mobility of black and brown people primarily in Los Angeles. And I was taken back by that. I said, you're a prominent planner in Los Angeles. You've won awards in LA and you don't understand mobility of these certain folks. You do not understand that Inglewood is not that far from the beach, but there are folks who have never been to the beach, not because they can't get there, but they feel it's not safe and not safe because um, because of the things that I just mentioned, but not safe because of police presence on the beach, the constant pushback that they received just being off being black on a beach. You did not know this. And they were like, no, I didn't know this. So that's why I think that not, there's a lot of different spaces in terms of the built 
how the built environment gets built, whether it be architecture, planning, urban design, et cetera, that needs far more diversity on a socioeconomic level of as well. I did promise, I said, I'm not going to go on these long, long, long run on answers. And, <laughs> and here I go. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, I could, I could jump on that. I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk about it. For example, I had this argument on Twitter with this person about... Um, Why are you arguing on Twitter first? No, no, this was before Musk. This was before this whole thing. But sometimes you just, you just, you just look for stuff sometimes. I was running some fight that day. And she was just bragging about, oh, I loved riding the bus. The bus is so awesome. And this is DC. So it was like, oh, I love riding the bus. I'm doing this experiment all week. I ride different buses all day. Girl, you do not ride on all these buses. That is a lie. No. And this whole car-centric thing, this is a whole different thing. But focusing on her, I was like, no, it's not safe. It is not safe. I've seen people, I've seen fights. I've seen people who don't pay and it was like, I'm going to blow up this bus. I'm going to beat the shit out of the, the driver. And you got to get <laughs> off the bus or the bus don't come. And you end up walking. It's the worst. Oh, you have old schools let out. Like we get a bunch of teenagers on that bus and they just be harassing people. I remember I used, I used to do that. I know how it is. As a teenager, I used to be hanging out. Just right. fucking with people. But right. she's bragging about how the luxury experience this is. And going to her bus stop, there's a little like time ticker to let you know when the bus is coming and tells you a little weather and you get the little news that is covered, like all this stuff. And we go to neighborhoods that I know and it's on a dirt road with no sidewalk and you have to sit there and wait for the bus. It is not safe. Oh, okay. But I think, so I'm all for increasing, we're talking about mobility, but we're all, I'm all for increasing public transportation to allow people to get to efficiently to get to where they want to go. And so remember, we talked about when I'm living in Los Angeles, where public transportation is well known to not being the most efficient in the country, I would say. And some spaces that I operate in rural, in the rural South, where again, clearly public transportation is either non-existent or inefficient. So I do believe that I, I am a proponent of increasing public mobility, that public transportation is now a luxurious experience. Look, if that was possible, if it is possible, I believe it can be, but I think we're a ways away from that. I think we need to focus on the efficiency first. But a luxurious experience, I haven't had a luxurious experience on public transportation in the U.S. yet. South Korea was absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But yeah, in the U.S., I would say, no, not so much. No, that's doing equality. All the bus stops need to have time ticker and build a shelter uh, for every stop, not just this area gets it and yeah. none. That's the thing. And make it safe for all. If her bus had a cop on it, driving back and forth, then not, yeah, okay, that works. But that's not the privilege of everybody. But yeah. You're not riding the bus anytime soon? No, I, I don't ride the bus. <laughs> And that is because it is something that you have control over. My reasoning comes from being on the bus, being on the, the train where people are pissing and talking crazy. And yeah. I've seen robberies. I've seen, damn, I got to get off the car. Or I'm waiting a half hour, 45 minutes for a train and I could have been home by now, and now I got to hop in an Uber to get home. And this would not have happened 
if I drove in. It's just the efficiency of public transportation, the cleanliness, the, the safety, really. And for me to get there on time and not be late, all these factors I take in serious consideration when I decide to drive in the city and pay $30, $40 to park my car. Again, I'm speaking of privilege. I am privileged enough to own a car. I'm privileged enough to pay for the parking that, that deals with the car as well as gas. Some people don't have that. My mom, for example, she doesn't have that. She doesn't drive, but she decided not to drive when she came into this country. So she depends on the bus. And because she has two daughters, we make an effort not to have her take public transportation simply because it's dangerous. So we would chauffeur our our mom around. Look, you picked up on, so your experience is not isolated and it's not, I, I think it's probably for a majority of people who ride public transportation in communities, I will say. But I think that's because the investment in the public transportation in those communities just hasn't been there like others, right? There isn't a sense of safety. There isn't a sense of security. It's inefficient. The maintenance is not there. But that's why I think, that's why I say that there should be more diversity in terms of socioeconomic and with people who are making more in the decision-making of what these infrastructure projects look like, what they could do, where they should start, what's the vision, what's the metrics of success for the project. So that, like you said, I think if you just have a police officer drive by, have a police, well, police officer on foot that's walking around that community, automatically gives some sort of sense of community. Obviously there's pros and cons, but there's a somewhat of a sense of security along those lines. So those conversations need to happen earlier. But the reason why I, I am not, I can't, I'm not for cars. I just, I, but I do believe that public transit needs to be improved in this country because there are a lot of people who can't afford cars. And in DC, in New York, in Boston, where public transportation is a, little, is a lot better than a place like Los Angeles that's sprawled out, that really then becomes tough for families who can't afford a car to then work in the places that they need to work in or want to work in to be an upcoming somewhere of upward mobility. I also think just that alone, just not having access to different parts of the city then limits you quite a bit. And it keeps a lot of communities in survival mode, constantly in survival mode. But one thing we obviously we do in practice is look at the aesthetic. The, the practice is named Atelier Coronary. So we're focusing on the artistic side of things. But there, what we ultimately try to do is make sure that it's imp- the work is impactful. Whether we're teaching students, I'm teaching students to try to look at their work differently, think about programs, think about how do you help actually help people in, in meaningful ways. And in practice, try to do that as well. And one thing is to try to get people out of survival mode and then flourishing mode. I think far too often we are so used to survival mode. That even in a drive-by shooting, we could drop to the floor and tell somebody, nah, we're good. Don't worry about it. We fear for our lives and still say, nah, we're good. Forget about it. Get up, pat them on the shoulder and move on. That's not good. It's not. That's not good, Corey. Corey, thank you so much. Your website is... It will be up in in three weeks. Two weeks. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And, exactly. I, and, and thank you for, for coming to the lecture. It's such an important lecture series that was put on by the National Building Museum. So that being a part of that was amazing. Thanks for tuning in to Architecture's Political Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it informative or at least entertaining. 
If you like what you heard, please share with others. You can also connect with Arcus Polly on social media, currently on Instagram, as well as Facebook and Twitter. If for more information, visit us on our website. It's arcuspolly.online, A-R-C-H-I-P-O-L-L-Y.online. I also want to thank our loyal supporters who have been with this podcast for at least three years. It means the world to me, and I'm totally grateful to have you part of this community. I will try to bring you the best content as possible, and I can't wait to share more amazing episodes with you. If this is your first time listening or just like a particular episode or all of them, you can support this podcast by going on glow.fm slash Again, thank you for your support. It means the world to me. And thank you so much for listening.